Welcome to Crime Crazy, the weekly true crime podcast with Aaron Plein and Diana Seacon, where we prove that we know nothing about our legal system, but we're still crazy for a good true crime story. Yes, we are. You didn't even roll your eyes. I tried really hard. <laughs> you just rolled your eyes. That is the second time we've recorded this exact same sequence where I'm like, you didn't roll your eyes. And you're like, oh, and roll your eyes. <laughs> uh, I really thought. I had worked on the eye rolling. <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> like, just in general. Right. Because I used to be an eye roller when I'm thinking. Oh, yeah. Which, you know, can be just makes you look rude. like an asshole. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, I thought I had worked on it more. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like before long, we're going to need some statistics about... How many episodes to say and roll her eyes and get called out? Well, how many episodes have we recorded together? I mean, that many. Right. Like a lot, a lot. A lot, a lot. But I don't know. <laughs> I, I only just started noticing recently. I don't know either. Maybe it's a new thing. Maybe. But I mean, you could have been doing it all along and I just didn't notice. It could be. Wow. We'll that was know. like a full minute of talking about whether or not you rolled your eyes. <laughs> I think I think we just peaked. Yeah, yeah, probably so. <laughs> I'm feeling a little punchy, Diana. Tiny bit, tiny yeah. bit. And it's not even all that late. It's concerning. Well, we did a lot today. And by we, I mean you, because I definitely did not. Oh, I did do a lot. I actually did a lot. Um, and I went to Michael's. Also, I want you to know, and I want our listeners to know, because you all should feel very loved that I am here doing this with you when I have new craft supplies sitting three and a half feet from me that I cannot use while I am recording an episode. So they're just sitting there. Aww. And I haven't gotten to use them yet. She really likes us, you guys. It's true. It's very true. <laughs> There's even coloring stuff in there. Oh, man. The paintiest paintbrush I have ever seen in my life. I bought a set of 360 sparkly gel pens, mm. of which only about 180 actually seem to be sparkly gel pens, and the rest are just kind of awesome gel pens, and I've been coloring with those, and my life has changed. Mm. I'm doing watercolor markers right now, Ooh. but then I bought some actual watercolors. Ooh. I know. I know. Maybe you should start painting things for our patrons. Ooh, I've been drawing some octopuses. Right. Um, they are all intertwined and tangled up and different colors. And last night I drew a ghost octopus, Ooh. and they are so cute. They're like two inches tall, and they have kind of like ears. They're very cute. Aww. Yeah. I'm so jealous that you can draw. It, I mean, you know, it's not great, but it was a lot of fun. And you can tell it's an octopus. Um, bullshit. It is great. They're fantastic. I've seen them. I can draw a stick figure. Um, I've seen your stick figure. <laughs> yes, you can. <laughs> His name is Pierre. I can also draw him a girlfriend and a dog and a cat and a flower. Nice. There you go. And that That's is all. Everything you could ever need. That's right. <laughs> We should play drawing without dignity. Bad things would happen to Pierre. Oh, God. It would be I can't, great. I can't do anything with Pierre. I can't 
move him. He doesn't make gestures. Like, it is literally a stick figure. Mm -hmm. But does he have great hair? No, he has no hair. He's a stick figure. So it's not the Pierre we work with then? No, but Pierrette sometimes has hair. Oh, Pierrette. Yeah, Pierre's girlfriend. Wow. And then there's Pierre Shaw and Pierre Chien and Pierre Fleur. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, what it is like to live in Diana's head. <laughs> so um, our Pierre, Pierrette, Piet Chat, Pierre, Chien, <laughs> Pierre Fleur, are, are they sponsors of Crime Crazy? Oh, they should be. I'll need to get on that. But what I can tell you is that Crime Crazy is sponsored by Seb Bryce. Woohoo! Who does exist? I got a picture. Thanks, Seb. <laughs> I love it. Oh my God, Seb is awesome. <laughs> he is awesome. Uh, Courtney Ellis. Woohoo! Wait, does she exist? She does exist. I hugged her just days ago. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So did you? It's true. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> and Dave Hat. And Dave Hat, thank you, who I also have seen and met. And yes. To in person. Yes. It's true. It's true. I love that. I don't know if it's still true, but for a long time, his um, Facebook profile pic was him in a top hat. Uh, Yeah, I don't think it's anymore, but it was for a long time. True story. If you would like to be awesome like those three, you can sponsor us or just visit Patreon and, you know, do whatever you feel like. Dollar, two dollars, ten. It's up to you. 150, 900. Yeah, I mean, we don't have levels for that, but we'll make something up. It's cool. Uh, you could probably get lots of stuff from us, actually, at that level. That sounded... That sounded really bad. I was thinking like my children, <laughs> but only because the little one has endless energy and has literally been bouncing for like 12 and a half hours a day. Oh, God. It's a little exhausting. I'm tired just thinking about it. Mm-hmm. So maybe not to the point where Erin will send you her youngest. Probably not. But whatever you feel like. And if you don't feel like making a monthly commitment, that's cool. Just buy me a coffee.com. <laughs> I've not yet come up with a graceful way of getting to that I one. I <laughs> love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, so yeah, there are the places you can give us money. You can also give us reviews. Yes. Which are like money, but with words. I mean, yes. I, uh huh. And it makes you I'm awesome. Way, I'm way too punchy for this. <laughs> and makes you awesome. And if all you want to do is check out how awesome we are, uh, we are on all the social medias at crimecrazypod.com. That's right. Really? We are on all the social no! medias Jesus. at crimecrazypod. And you can visit us at crimecrazy.com. I really fucked this one up, didn't I? I, it was a little rough. I, but, I, you know, I get it. Like, this is all brand new information that you've never had to say out loud before. Right. Certainly that's the problem. Yeah. I'm leaving all this in when we edit, too. <laughs> of course you are. <laughs> that's, the, that's the cost of me doing the editing. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I get to tell whatever story I want. <laughs> Speaking of telling things, have you learned anything this week you'd like to tell us about? Ooh, I did. What did you learn? There is a place in America that you can get away with murder. What? Yeah. I would like to never go there. Where is this place? And what the hell? 
<laughs> it is called the Yellowstone Zone of Death. What? <laughs> and while it's not a lawless place per se it's impossible to be tried for a crime there why so i'm just going to read this from wikipedia because i could not think of a shorter way to to go about it okay so here we go the court district governing wyoming is currently the only court district in the u.s to have jurisdiction over land in other states This is due to the fact that all of Yellowstone National Park, which includes parts of Wyoming, Idaho, and Montana, is part of the Wyoming Judicial District. Any criminal discovered to have committed a crime in that district would usually be brought to Cheyenne, Wyoming, where the court for Wyoming District is. However, the Sixth Amendment to the United States Constitution decrees that a trial must happen both within the district and state of where the crime was committed. Because of this, a crime committed in the zone of death would be constitutionally required to be tried in and include only jury members from the zone. However, that part of Yellowstone in Idaho is uninhabited and a jury cannot be assembled and the criminal would be unable to have a fair trial, meaning that they cannot receive any legal punishment for major crimes. I mean, is this like you're not allowed to walk your alligator without a leash in Florida on Fridays and actually you would still go to prison? No, this is true. They people can do whatever they want. Um they can't be tried. It's in violation of the constitution. That yikes. Right. So, as far as we know, uh, and especially since we talked last week about how it's much safer in national parks than right. in general, there have been no felonies committed in the zone of death, but one guy did illegally shoot an elk in that zone. And he tried to use the paper that first laid out why the zone of death was the way it was to avoid trial. The judge didn't agree and the man pleaded guilty instead of going to trial. So it is a little bit like that. Like it's technically, but they still will do something about it. Um, it sounds like the judge was like, yeah, that's not a thing. So I don't know. It seems like it was relatively undiscovered that this anomaly existed. Mm-hmm. It was actually a law student or maybe he was a lawyer. But somebody wrote a paper talking about he had decided to look and see if there was any way that you could actually get away with murder thinking, you know, of course not. Mm-hmm. And it turns out there's this little bit of area that has kind of the sweet spot. The you know, the court is in a different state Mm -hmm. and there are no inhabitants in that zone. So you can't put together a jury. That's terrifying. Well, it is, but again, it's pretty remote. People aren't really there. Um, I suspect that the guy pleaded guilty to hedge his bets. Right. You know, he's probably right. It may have been overturned on appeal, But is that the hill he wants to die on for illegally shooting an elk? Right. He's not a constitutional scholar. He's a hunter. Right. Those things generally don't go hand in hand. Not necessarily. But, I mean, it was an ingenious argument. It was worth trying. Yeah. Yeah. But. Well, I would like to still never go there. I just talked about how I camped out in Yellowstone last week, Diana. <laughs> I didn't camp out last week. I talked about it last week, but still. Well, right. Well, I was in the zone of death. 
You weren't. It's really remote. Oh, yeah. Definitely we drove where we were, so. And also, it, like, I fucking told y'all not to go into the woods. Yeah, but that was after I went camping. Well, that's true. I didn't even know you then. I was only 16. Oh, and I was like 60. Oh, like 68? <laughs> Somewhere in there. Math is hard when you're this old. It's true. Your brain is like practically dust. Practically? Literally? Entirely. Erin. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Last week on Crime Crazy. Yes. Last week on Crime Crazy, we finished up with the fourth set of victims, number seven and eight. Actually, um, five, six, seven, and eight of the Colonial Parkway murders. And in order to just continue this thread in the most obvious and easy way possible, we're going to talk about the Colonial Parkway murders again today. So can we have just a quick recap of all four sets of victims? Yes, I think that would be a great idea because we're going to get into some details today. So... Um, starting in 1986, October of 1986, Kathleen Thomas and Rebecca Andowski, who were 27 and 21, were potentially camping on the Colonial Parkway when they were murdered. Their bodies were found in the back of Kathy's car. Um, one in the back seat and one in the sort of trunk of the hatchback. The car had been shoved over the edge as if somebody was trying to get it down into the river and had gotten stuck. And then they had been doused with diesel, which we learned is not easily flammable. Mm -hmm. Um, And there were some cigarette butts. They were attempted. um, It was attempted. Somebody attempted to light them on fire. Um, They did not burn and they were found there. But of course, when they were found, the responding officers broke open the back window of the car because they thought that maybe it was an accident with fatalities. Maybe there were survivors and destroyed a ton of evidence. (sighs) Then a year later, September, 1987, David Knobling and Robin Edwards, who were 20 and 14 and had only met that night were for some reason out in the middle of the night together uh, in David's black pickup truck And they um, were found in an area known as Ragged Island, or actually the the car was found abandoned in an area known as Ragged Island. And like Kathy's car, everything was still in it. This time the door was open, the car was on, the radio was playing, the wipers were going, and the people were gone. And there were tons of clothes inside the car. Um, The bodies were found... A little while later, several days later, actually by David's dad, he found his son. They were washed up on the shore of the York River near the car. Um, Some joggers had come across Robin's body and they had both been killed with a gun um, execution style. Although David, it appeared, had tried to escape and was shot in the shoulder before he was shot in the head. (sighs) Then uh, the next episodes that was two weeks ago last time we talked about cassandra lee haley and richard keith call keith who were cnu students or cnc students um who had gone on their first date didn't go well they came home together they left the party they were at at 1 30 a.m somehow even though it was completely out of their way their car wound up on the colonial parkway um all of their clothing was inside 
door open, keys sitting on the seat, wallet out. And for a while, the police thought that maybe they had gone out and um, gone skinny dipping and drowned in the river. They brought dogs who did follow the scent to the river, but no one ever really believed that they had gone skinny dipping because it was really cold. Um, Neither of them have ever been found at all. Mm. And then finally, the fourth victims, Anna Maria Phelps and Daniel Lauer. They were a guy and then his little brother's girlfriend. Big brother's girlfriend? Don't actually remember. Um... (laughs) Sorry. And they were on a trip from Newport News to Virginia Beach, which is a trip that takes you east about an hour and a half or so. They were supposed to go and visit the rest of the Lauer family, but they never arrived. They, their car was found at a rest stop that was kind of on the way, except it was going the wrong direction. And dogs couldn't pick up their scent at all, leading investigators to believe that maybe they were never actually at that rest stop, even though the car was there. The car like the previous two was open unlocked uh, window partially down wallet out keys in the ignition and they couldn't find the owners at all Um, but then about a month later the bodies were found in the woods by some hunters who were hunting off of a logging road Um, they were pretty much decomposed, almost skeletal, um, and Anna Maria's body was covered with an electric blanket, which had been in Daniel's car when they had left that day. Cause of death was never satisfactorily identified. Did they have any inkling at all? Like, probably not a gunshot. Probably not a gunshot, no bullets. Um, The closest they got was an anthropologist at the Smithsonian who found the nick on Anna Maria's finger and said that maybe there had been a knife involved and she had been trying to fend off the attacker and that's how she had gotten the cut all the way on the bone of her finger. Mm -hmm. But that was it. That was all they knew. (sighs) Yep. So this week, we are going to talk about theories and suspects and things that have happened since the late 80s in this case. And as promised, this will be really frustrating because there is no answer. It has never been solved. We don't know who the killer was. I think the actual frustrating part that we talked about last week is we have all the information we need. Potentially. Yeah. Um, And we'll talk about that, too, because that is a very, very recent development that Mm -hmm. um, there's DNA in these cases. And we'll talk about that. So first, I want to go back to 1990. So in 1990, there was a little bit of a revival in the case. And the police and the FBI came back out. They revisited it and they were asking for tips. And they got so many tips. Hundreds and hundreds of tips came in. People really, really cared about this case. It was one of the bigger cases to ever happen in Virginia. It was unsolved. Um, At this point, like it had touched the lives of a lot of people in some of the the biggest cities in the area. So Newport News, Norfolk, Virginia Beach, Gloucester, Williamsburg, all of that area right there. There's a ton of military. Um, Mm -hmm. there are schools, there is a lot of history, there's a lot of tourism, like this is all, all very important to Virginia culturally. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it was something that people wanted to talk about and they wanted to help with and they wanted to be involved with and they wanted to see it solved. Um, but as with most tips, 
almost all of them are just throwaway, right? So people were worried about their neighbors or they suspected their brother or their cousin or their coworker or their friend. Um, one tip that came in was actually a police officer who was pretty sure the murderer was his partner because something was off with him. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah. Which, I mean... That was about the only evidence that he had. But to be fair, there has always been the suspicion that law enforcement was involved because so many of the cars were found with windows down um, with no sign of a struggle in the vehicle at all. Usually the driver's identification, their wallet or their purse or whatever, was very near the driver's side door as if somebody had been handling it, um, you know, just prior to the disappearance or the death or the murder. Um, And so... It's entirely possible that all of these people were pulled over or they had been parking and an officer came up behind them or, you know, something happened that involved law enforcement or somebody pretending to be law enforcement. Mm -hmm. So there was one promising tip. A man in his 30s, he was known to hang out at Ragged Island and along the parkway. He was in a relationship that ended really badly just before the first murders. Mm-hmm. He had a history of abuse as a child and mental health issues. And in fact, between the first and second sets of murders, he had spent a bunch of time in a mental hospital and he was released one day before the second murders were committed. Hmm. The very night that Keith and Haley disappeared, some of this man's friends or acquaintances had seen him acting strange and erratic and just really, really off. And I guess this would have been like the day he got home from the mental hospital. So mm-hmm. I, I feel like that's out. fair. Yeah. And by the time this tip came in, he had left the country without any explanation. So, yeah, super, super suspicious. Meadows and Latrell and Johnson were three of the investigators that were handling the case. And they tried to get all the information on this man that they could. And they tried to get medical records and mental health records about the suspect. But, of course, you can't just do that. And so they were blocked by doctors. Um, And, in fact, Meadows spent over a year trying to get fingerprints and hair samples and other things from... Um, just just any source that he could, primarily doctors, which was sort of the issues, or like uh, medical facilities, sort of the issue, because mm-hmm. he couldn't. Um, finally, he gave up on the person being a suspect. And so I wasn't able to find the article that I was reading. Like, this was super, super fascinating. I think it was in the Virginia Pilot. Um, but it didn't say whether he gave up on him because he wasn't able to get any information. It sounded like he decided this guy wasn't a suspect. So maybe he was able to get fingerprints or something that he, or an alibi or something he felt cleared mm-hmm. the man. So um, there was also a man in Canada who seemed like a really likely suspect for a while. He lived in Hampton Roads, which is the name of this area. Mm-hmm. and had even committed at least one sexual assault there. And mm-hmm. now, in Canada, he was a suspect in a murder where a woman had been abducted from her car, taken into the woods, tied to a tree, and burned to death. Oh. So it seemed really, really promising. Mm-hmm. However, the Canadian authorities ended up 
convicting another person of that murder. So they found who actually had done it. This guy was no longer a suspect. And so now all he was was a guy who had once raped someone in the general area where these murders had taken place. And so no longer a very good suspect. Well, and not a very good suspect to begin with, because we don't have any sort of evidence that there was any sexual assault involved at all. True. True. Although there doesn't seem to be any sexual assault in the murder they thought he did in Canada either. So I guess that you could make the argument that a long time ago he raped someone. Then he realized what he really wanted to be was killer. Mm. But why not both? It's true. Well, we don't, to be fair, have any evidence that he, that the killer or killers didn't assault the other six victims. Right. We just are relatively sure they didn't assault the first two. Right. Um, Although, let me go to that really quickly. So they did do a rape kit on Kathy and Rebecca. Um, And this is something that I read a million years ago. So um, I'm going to need to verify it before I tell you that it's absolutely fact. But what I remember is that they did a rape kit and the FBI held on to it for a while untested. Um, They didn't find any evidence of rape, but they, I guess, eventually destroyed the DNA because it didn't get tested. And the FBI was like, yeah, I guess we don't need this anymore. (sighs) <sighs> yep. So I guess they destroyed the rape kit. I don't know that there was any DNA that wouldn't have been the girls, but yeah. Yeah. Um, so the, the trio of investigators, and of course there were a lot more investigators on this. These were just three that were primarily on the team. Um, they also had to investigate a bunch of police officers. Cause like I was saying, they, that was always a suspicion and continues to be a suspicion um, that It was either a cop or several cops or someone pretending to be a cop, um, rolled down windows, lack of struggles, uh, IDs and wallets out in the open, um, nothing taken from the car, you know, somebody that might, especially if it's somebody that was only pretending to be a cop, like wanting that power and, and getting it by killing people, I mean, Mm -hmm. pulling them over and killing them. So in late 1990, they found a man on Interstate 64, and it sounds like he was not in a vehicle, but he was walking along or he was on the side of the road, and he had a pair of handcuffs on his belt. And so they stopped him and questioned him and looked on his person and looked through his vehicle, and they found he also had a fake police badge and a red flashing light that he could put on the top of his roof to make his car look like an unmarked police car. Mm -hmm. And a criminal record for sexual assault. Hmm. And so they were pretty darn certain this was their guy, except he had been in prison during three of the four dates of murder. Mm, That does cut down on one's availability to be murdering. It does. It really, really does. So this was 1990. There was still investigation. This case is still open even today. Um, But the next really big thing that happened was in 2010 when no real progress had been made. So the families reached out and hired uh, retired Milwaukee uh, PD homicide detective Steve Spingola. Maybe Spingola. Probably should look that up. (laughs) So he'd been a featured detective on a show called Cold Justice, 
And he had a nationwide reputation as an excellent investigator who was very successful and could solve all sorts of things, whether it was in his jurisdiction or not. Mm -hmm. And so he seemed like someone that would be very, very helpful. And they invited him in to look through all the files, to visit the crime scenes, to see what could have possibly been missed. So he did. He looked into the case. He talked to family members. He received and reviewed tips. He talked to original investigators. Of course, it got a lot of attention because he was a pretty famous person in this area. And so there were lots of tips that came in. Um, and he had pretty good access to to people that he wanted to talk to. Mm-hmm. And then in August, so several like three months later, he published his findings in a 29-page magazine article called Predators on the Parkway, a former homicide detective explores the colonial parkway murders and i have read this document um and i the the gist is that he didn't believe there was a colonial parkway serial killer or a team of colonial parkway serial killers he believed that most of the murders were unrelated So he thought that the first pair, Kathleen Thomas and Rebecca Dowski, were killed by the same killer as these other two victims, uh, Lolly Winans and Julie Williams, who were a pair of victims found in 1996, so a decade later, with slashed throats in the Shenandoah National Park, which is a, it's like a similar kind of area, but it's 180 miles from the parkway. It's out to the west in the mountains. Um, and so, like, there were a lot of similarities between these two cases, um, but, I mean, like, the the cause of death or the, you know, the MO and everything like that makes a lot of sense, but there was such a distance and such a time difference that I personally think it seems unlikely, although he does have a ton more experience than me. Well, and not... None of those things are particularly unique. No. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah. So he talked a lot about like all the different, all the different killings, all the rest of them he thought were unrelated. Um, and the families on the whole were not terribly happy with the investigation. And I actually did reach out to Bill, but, um, kind of last second. So I haven't heard Mm -hmm. back yet, but just to find out, kind of what his thought was because he's quoted a lot in this article Mm -hmm. um he's always been one of the more active people in this case that have really been advocating for you know something something to be done and so i think his name is out there a whole lot but i was really interested in hearing what his thoughts were because i from what i've read it sounds like on the whole it this just didn't feel right it right. just didn't really answer the questions. It certainly didn't identify any any suspects or anything like that, but um, or didn't identify anyone that was eventually arrested. But also, they seemed to think that Spingola um, focused on some things that were not necessarily important and, and got distracted by details that just didn't really make a ton of sense. Mm-hmm. But the other thing they were really annoyed with, and this one I fully agree with um was that spingola profited considerably from this article so he didn't just create a report and give it to law enforcement or the families and i think this was the deal all along but he published it in a magazine and and made a bunch of money from it and his 
answer to this was that's how he funds what he does and his investigations is that he publishes articles he makes money then he's able to travel and ask questions and spend time and all of that kind of stuff which yes and he made a lot of money on an article instead of being helpful right so um there was Another disagreement in all of this, which was about a note that was uncovered during the investigation, although even that there's disagreement about because I think it was the family said, and I didn't write this down, but the family said that the note was given to investigators initially during the first investigation, but then investigators said they didn't remember such a note. I guess maybe it wasn't in their records, but either way, this note was uncovered. Um, And it apparently implicated a person of interest. So basically, it was a note written by one of the girls. And it said that it had the name of someone. It was by, um, so it was a note um, in Robin's handwriting, I believe. And and basically, it was was talking about um, going to meet someone and potentially buy drugs is what they thought it was referenced and that um Spingola believed that it it was a really good clue that would have explained why they were where they were in this like rough area and and then that it might prove that like they got into a situation where they were being robbed or like something had gone wrong with a drug deal and then she mouthed off and then and this was the one I think I referenced in the in the first one about people being really cruel Mm -hmm. it was terrible Spingolo is basically like here's what I think happened they went there and they were buying weed and then they were being robbed by the drug dealers and then Robin who was really sassy and just a troubled child must have said something mouthy and got them both killed and it was just awful right So investigators didn't really put a ton of value to this note. Like they Mm -hmm. didn't think that it really mattered. Probably primarily because if all of these cases are connected, who cares what one of them wrote about a note? It's really unlikely that all of them wound up in that situation. Right. Um, But he Spingola made a, a big, big deal of it. He said it was very significant. And he even in his article described the vehicle of the suspect. And it's, it's a very kind of vague description. It's like the color and the mm-hmm. kind of car it is or whatever. But still, like he put a ton of, of emphasis on this and maybe in a really inappropriate way, especially since this person was never charged with any crime. Right. So then there is the person that I have always wondered about and I'm interested to hear your thoughts. And I was really interested to hear thoughts from the families and from the press and that kind of thing. Cause it seems like this person's pretty much discounted as a suspect. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I don't know if this was a like crime novel or an episode of Criminal Minds, this guy would (laughs) totally be the killer. So, Fred Atwell. So, on August 31st, 2011, Fred Atwell was arrested for robbing a woman at gunpoint in Roanoke. He told her he had been living in the woods and he was hungry, and he made away with less than $100 and was then arrested, like, almost right away. 
mm-hmm. and imprisoned. So Atwell has always been tied to the Parkway cases as well. Um, and he's been a suspect more than once. And I don't know that I would discount him. So back in 2009, Atwell claimed to have been contacted by a friend at a security company. He said that his friend wanted him to teach a class about the Colonial Parkway murders because he had been a deputy in Gloucester at the time and knew all about the cases. And Atwell was like, really don't know a ton about the cases, so I think I'm going to pass. And the friend said, but no, wait, before you make this decision, let me tell you what I have and I'll let you see them if you agree to come and teach this class for me and what he had was over 80 crime scene photos that had been taken from the norfolk fbi files on the parkway murders holy shit and he yep had been using them or was planning to use them to teach this this class so atwell came and he looked at the photos and verified that's what they were and he made copies of them now All of that is what Atwell says, and he's a pretty untrustworthy character, so it's possible that he got the photos and distributed them, or that, you know, there's all Mm -hmm. kinds, you know, take it with a grain of salt. So, Atwell says that he then called the FBI and reported that these photos were out there, and they wouldn't call him back, wouldn't give him the time of day. Mm -hmm. Um, To be fair, he was always, from the beginning, overly involved in everything, and and a pest and not a reliable character and just kind of weird. So I don't know that I would have called him back either, but he says he was really frustrated that he couldn't get justice. And so he went to channel three news and he told them, Hey, I have these photos. I've called the FBI and let them know. Let me send some to you. They called the FBI (sighs) to say, Hey, did you know about this? And of course the FBI responded immediately Mm-hmm. Atwell says it was only then that the FBI came to him and they came and they they say they have gotten all of the photos back, the originals and the, or the, the first set of copies and the copies that Atwell made. So, of course, the families were super, super, super upset about this because yeah. why wouldn't you be? Plus, there's the concern that this in some way could damage the case. Like now, maybe information the police were keeping quiet, you know, in order to, to try to get a confession out of somebody or whatever is now out there. And it's just this huge violation of privacy. Like yeah. photos of their loved ones after horrific things have happened to them. But... The upside of all of it was that the case, which at this point was like 25 years cold, received this resurgence of interest. And that is always helpful with cold cases. In fact, that is going to be part of our call to action today because it really puts pressure on law enforcement when it's getting a lot of attention in the media and in the public Mm -hmm. for them to do something and solve it. So in 2010... So the next year, um, Atwell contacted Bill Thomas, brother of the first victim, and some of the other families. And he said that he had been contacted by this attorney who said he had a client who was guilty of all of the murders. And if they would send $20,000, the attorney's clients would give locations of Keith and Cassandra's bodies. What the fuck? Right? So, of course, they didn't because they're they not, are not idiots. Yeah. And 
he got crazier and crazier about it and then eventually this was like in January and several months later he sort of gave up the story then the next year early in the year Atwell came up with a scheme to raise some money for the families and this one I think we've talked about so he decided they were going to raffle a car Mm-hmm. And all of the money would go into the Colonial Parkway Victims Fund, or Murder Victims Fund. I forget what the title was. And, um, you know, the only thing that he would need is, like, he would donate the car. He would handle everything. Um, and then he, I think there was a boat involved at one point, too. And then he needed some money for DMV to get tags and pay fees and all that kind of stuff, right? And that's it. Mm-hmm. So they did this event. The car was there. People bought tickets. They raffled it off. There was a winner. Um, at the end of the day, Atwell collected all the money, and they're not sure how much of the raffle money he stole. But there was <sighs> no car. The car he had borrowed from a dealership, so he returned that. And there was no car for the winner. Um, and then he cashed a $270 check that was supposed to go to DMV and he just pocketed that money and disappeared. (sighs) So once he had done that, he called a suicide hotline and said that he was a major suspect in a serial killing case and he was suicidal and he wanted to commit suicide by cop. And he did not do those things, which is good only because some poor cop would have had to shoot him and live with the fact that he took a life. What a fucking narcissist. He's crazy. Um, So it has always been, I think, I think it's just fact, but at least popular belief that um, the Atwell at least knew something about the case that he wasn't telling anyone because he would just insinuate himself into the investigation over and over and over again. He'd get close to the families. He really liked um, the attention that he could get from it. Like he liked to, he didn't mind being a suspect because it meant he was getting attention. He didn't mind like ripping off the families. He didn't care about them at all. At first they thought that he was just a well-intentioned local officer. Well, deputy which in this case just meant like someone was like hey do you want to be a deputy and he said sure that was it (laughs) um but but then of course you know as things went on for decades and he got sleazier and sleazier they didn't believe that anymore um but whatever he may have known we will never know because this past december he died in prison fuck I think he had like kidney failure or something like that. I forget what it was some medical something. So like natural causes, but now no one can ever ask him anything. <sighs> yeah. That, that whole like insinuating himself into things just smells guilty. I know. I know. Over and over again and got a hold of crime seen photos and made copies for himself and like was always talking to the families and just really I just I think either way he's a terrible human being or was a terrible human being yeah 
but also pretty darn good suspect in my opinion. But well, yeah, and we've seen that kind of behavior before with criminals. You know, a lot of folks that set fires stick around to watch it burn. Yeah. We have Eddie Kemper, who wanted to be a cop but couldn't, so just hung out with the cops. Right. And went on ride-alongs because there's no way old Eddie Kemper could have done all this. Right. You know, it's so, not unusual. Yeah. I don't know... I mean, like, he seems like such a great suspect. There must be something we don't know as to why he wasn't charged. Because it wasn't like he was protected by being a police officer. Because other officers were investigated. There were other organizations involved, like the FBI, who could definitely investigate a local, not even quite a cop. Um, and, And he wasn't particularly favored. Like, no one liked him for very long it wasn't like they would have done him a favor and not investigated so there must be something about an alibi or his ability or or something that makes him a less good suspect i mean or that's just another example of how things got totally fucked up well and i I almost lean that way it doesn't seem like they ever looked real hard yeah It's interesting because on the one hand, there were so many mistakes made along the way. Fingerprint cards lost, DNA destroyed, um, cars like busted, crime scenes just totally destroyed. Like there were all these things. On the other hand, half of the articles that I've read have been sort of from the point of view of these detectives and FBI agents, and they seem just gutted that they can't solve this. And... There's always, like, it's still an open case. There aren't a ton of people actively working on it, but at least it is occasionally being actively worked on. Right. So I, I don't know that everybody working it was inept. I think that's probably an overstatement, but. <laughs> but it's but hard to know. Lot. Yeah. Well, so, and I suppose just being in general a fucking creeper and getting too close to things isn't. Yeah. Doesn't mean anything. Right. But I mean, he would have had a firearm and he would have had a car with lights and he would have had, you know, enough to pull someone over, even though mm-hmm. it would have been outside of his jurisdiction. And he was always there. Like he fits a lot of it. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Um, so that kind of brings us to today ish. Right now we're 30 years over 30 years out. Um, The cases are still considered active, but there hasn't been a ton of progress made. However, in 2017, like near the end of 2017, the families and media were told that there is testable DNA that they think is perpetrator DNA in three of the four cases. Mm. But either this DNA has yet to be tested over a year later or... Um, the results are for some reason not being shared because even the families have not heard that it has been tested or if it connects to anybody. It's been like almost two years. Yes. Yep. But remember last week we talked about over a hundred thousand rape kits haven't been tested either. And those perpetrators might still be active whereas nothing this guy or guys they've never done anything 
since the late 80s. So other than public interest in the case and pressure from families and pressure from media, like there's not a good reason to prioritize it because no one's in danger. <sighs> that is unsatisfactory. Agreed. Um, last thing is really that one of the things that's always been sort of a point of discussion is how many people were the, were the killers. Mm-hmm. So all the way from are these four cases actually related? There are some huge similarities, especially with the last three, but there are also some huge differences, different kinds of murder, like instead of progressing from killing from a distance with a gun to strangling and slitting someone's throat, it bounced all around. Mm -hmm. Um, The bodies were discovered in all different kinds of places. Um, You know, the cars were very similar, but even the location and in one of the cases, it was, you know, 30 miles away, Mm -hmm. which is significant. Um, But also, if they are all related, there's a lot of discussion about whether this was one person who maybe had a gun and used that to control his victims. And maybe even that like mask of authority being an officer or someone that was pretending to be a police officer. Um, Or was it more than one? Was there a guy with a gun and then the guy that did all of the tying up and the, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever else. And and that's entirely possible, too, because if you... Remember, like in the first case, the bodies were moved. And right. I mean, they were they were girls and they were not very big girls, but like a body is heavy. My my six year old is heavy. Right. So, you know, and the car was shoved over the edge of the like embankment. And so it definitely could be more than one killer. It could potentially be a ton of different killers. Yeah. I mean, technically there's not any evidence well there's there's no proof that Keith and Cassandra were murdered at all like the bodies have never been found weird shit happened and weird shit happened with the car even that morning but yeah we have no idea where they are right so that kind of leads into my call to action this week which is similar to the first one, which is just these kind of cases, especially when a serial killer stops killing, whether they actually stopped killing, which may or may not be a thing, or whether they died or moved or, I don't know, were imprisoned or got sick or whatever. When there's nothing happening, there's no active threat. They just go cold. And the only way that they ever get solved is if people put a bunch of pressure on law enforcement to solve this case. And the only way to do that is to have just a ton of knowledge and a ton of interest and a ton of attention given to the case. So my call to action is to just read all that you can about this. There are so many articles. There's a fiction, a fictional book um, based off of it. It's, um, oh gosh, it's like a Patricia... Cromwell? Cornwell? What is her name? Cornwell, I think. One of those. You can tell I read a ton of books. No, um, but uh, in that one it is solved, but not in real life. Right. Um, But yeah, there's a a lot. The um, special kind of evil 
is a book written by an investigative journalist and his daughter about this case and it's it's pretty darn close to factual I mean there's some <laughs> liberties taken with some of it and a little bit of information is a little skewed but it is also so wonderful in the way that it treats victims and their families like it really really focuses on them and not you know how exciting or what a spectacle the case was or the murderer or whatever um and it's a very very good read it's it's well written um there is of course the the facebook page it's a colonial parkway case but you can also search colonial parkway murders and it'll come up and then there are a couple other facebook pages that you can get to from there as well so some of the other families um run some other pages with information so this case especially because it is near and dear to my heart but also really any cold case that's how it works that's how it gets solved mm-hmm. and we'll post links to the things that you talked about in our show notes and on social media yes. this week so if you'd like to get involved or learn more we have all sorts of resources for you yes absolutely do you have any advice for us I mean, just stay out of the woods again. Again? <laughs> I like that that's the advice again. Just stay out of the woods. Only pull over in well-lit areas. Yes. Yeah, I mean, that's still a thing, right? Like the Colonial Parkway murderer or murderers probably isn't going to get you. But you can put your blinkers on or your hazards on and drive slowly until you're in a place you're comfortable pulling over. Yep, absolutely. And you should. You should. And then you should call your people. Yes, absolutely. Not while you are driving or pulling over, because that might be what got you pulled over in the first place. Right. Yeah. It's like super legal in a lot of places now. It is. It is. Which is good. Um, But yeah, call your people. And don't end up on next week's episode.